that you're the you're the one that found the uh, victim down there. Is that right? The police will. Let's see here. Here's a kid who finds a body in the field and doesn't call the police. We don't think that story they makes sense. The physical they had to be in the Lies, lies, deny. You know, it's just one of those things that really doesn't happen in Fort Collins. For the Coloradoan, I'm Erin Udell, and this is People vs. Masters, Making a Murder in Fort Collins. In 1992, Tony Bolanderin was a reporter at the Coloradoan in Fort Collins. I started the Coloradoan in January of 1989. One day, a phone rings in the newsroom, and he picks it up. On the other end is Clyde Masters, and he is pissed. Clyde's son, Tim, you see, was just questioned by police at his naval base in Philadelphia. After years of being the prime suspect in a Fort Collins murder that Tony hadn't even really heard about until that day... Clyde and Tim, it seemed, were both fed up. So they called the newspaper, wanting to tell their story, and Tony took it. He went to Clyde's trailer, which at that time was still there, as was the field Peggy Hetrick was found in in 1987. He looked in Tim's bedroom, talked to Tim over the phone from Philadelphia, talked to police who he says didn't say much, and then he wrote the story on one local man's life as a murder suspect. It wasn't for another six years, not until 1998, that officers showed up at Tim Masters' California home and took him into custody. And when the arrest went down, I thought it was unbelievable. I was just blown away by how police, what evidence, I I, I asked myself constantly what police had that really proved this guy was guilty, because everything I looked at seemed circumstantial and, and based on you know, gut feelings and hypotheticals and just unsubstantiated theories. When I tell courts, I always said that nobody knows the criminal justice system until they're part of it. After years of looking over his shoulder, maintaining his innocence and having this investigation sort of hang over him, Tim Masters finally became part of that system. On August 19, 1998, he's arrested in Ridgecrest, California for the murder of Peggy Hetrick. He ends up being sent to the Larimer County Detention Center. His trial starts on March 18, 1999. Here's Steve Lado again. If you look at Tim's trial, Tim's trial basically like lasted a week, you know, like, you know, a full week long of, of, court, of court time. And the bulk of that, the bulk of that was Dr. Reed Malloy, a forensic psychologist who specialized in getting on the stand and explaining why people were guilty based on things that he observed as an expert. He mm-hmm. never even talked to Tim. He had never met Tim. The first time he saw Tim was probably in court, and his entire testimony was based on his review of these drawings. From what I've read and heard, there was no new physical evidence that turned up between 1992 and 1998. What does happen, however, is that Lieutenant Jim Broderick finds Dr. Reed Malloy. Based in California, Malloy is a forensic psychologist. He consults on cases, teaches, gives lectures, leads trainings. I was uh, first contacted in and retained, actually, in the same month, which was November 1997. That's Malloy. When I was first retained on the case, um, it was as a, a forensic psychologist who would be involved in the investigation of a homicide where there were not yet um, any uh, charges that had been brought against uh, uh, Mr. Masters. And one of the things that I did initially was to ask 
to Lieutenant Broderick if there were uh, any other uh, suspects uh, in the case. And he reassured me that there were absolutely no other suspects in the case that um, the both the uh, prosecutor's office as well as the police department at Fort Collins uh, were focused solely on Mr. Masters as uh, the perpetrator of this crime. As a consultant, Molloy went over thousands and thousands of Tim's drawings and stories. He said the body of evidence he was given totaled to about nine three-ring binders filled with about 2,200 pictures drawn and stories written by Tim. The drawings involved um, various um, uh, acts of violence, uh, including uh, violence with knives, uh, uh, images of dismemberment, uh, images of aggression, uh, images of uh, attacks upon other people, we refer to as list attacks. And um, these were uh, typically scenes that were, that were carried through a lot of the material. In Broderick's arrest affidavit for Masters, there's almost 15 pages dedicated to his consultation with Malloy and Malloy's findings. It goes into location that most juvenile sexual homicide offenders murder close to where they live or work or hang out. It talked about blitz attacks, which went along with the police and prosecution's theory that Tim had somehow surprised Peggy from behind that night and stabbed her in the back. It says a sign of a disorganized sexual homicide includes the body of the victim being left in the same location as they're killed, with no effort to conceal it. And it goes on and on, saying disorganized offenders are usually socially uninvolved and emotionally detached loners. And then it goes into a motive. Now that's kind of what police had been missing this whole time. Tim had been a prime suspect because of his creepy drawings, his intense war story narratives. But in the affidavit, Broderick writes that it's in the opinion of Dr. Malloy that these drawings, these stories, served as a sort of rehearsal space for Master's murder fantasies. That's the motive. They allowed him to rehearse and refine this murder fantasy in his head until that night when the opportunity came along for him to actually do it. When I went to testify in the trial, which was in March of uh, 1999, given the, um, the, both the evidence that had been fabricated as well as the evidence that was withheld from me, uh, I was absolutely convinced that Tim Masters was the perpetrator of this crime. Just so you know, yes, he did just say something about evidence being somehow fabricated and withheld from him. Don't worry, I'll get into that later. But I wanted to talk more about the trial. So like I said before, it started on March 18th, 1999 in Fort Collins. Tim at that time was 27, and he looked a lot different from that skinny 15-year-old kid from 1987. He'd gained weight and kept his hair short now. He'd managed to scrounge up some money, and his family contributed, and he hired two area attorneys, Eric Fisher and Nathan Chambers. Chambers declined to comment for this podcast, and calls to Fisher's office were never returned. The state, led by prosecutors Terry Gilmore and Jolene Blair, called a lot of people to the stand throughout the trial. Among them was the cyclist who found Peggy, the Fort Collins officer first to arrive at the scene, a blood spatter expert out of Oklahoma, Patrick Allen, who was the Larimer County coroner at the time of Peggy's death, the driver who said she saw a woman walking on landings that night, Peggy's ex-boyfriend, the woman who he was with that night, more officers and more detectives, Reed Malloy, Tim's former classmate Wayne, one of his former teachers, and of course Broderick, who testified at length. The defense cross-examined these witnesses, but only called one of their own, John Ewell, a forensic psychologist from the University of British Columbia who kind of expanded on the field of forensic psychology, going into, as Tim writes in his book, how the field was not quite as advanced or accurate as had been portrayed by Dr. Malloy. 
He said there wasn't enough research to prove a link between fantasy and sexual homicide. He said the field was not really that developed yet. It wasn't an exact science. There was one big strategic decision to be made by Tim's defense attorneys, and I do not fault them at all for playing it the way they did because they had a choice to make. They could have turned the case into World War III and spent weeks or months litigating the issues of whether or not those pictures mean anything, whether or not any of the experts the prosecution had were, were you know, legitimate. But instead, they chose, you know something? Let's just kind of look at what's worth, and since it has such little value, we'll, 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 we'll treat it as such. And mm-hmm. that, could have, that could have gone, that, you know, a jury could have looked at that and said, you know something, there was nothing there. Unfortunately, the jury obviously thought there was something there. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't fault them for playing the way they did, because it, it, it could have gone either way. When it was time to make closing arguments, Jolene Blair went first, then t- one of Tim's attorneys, Nate Chambers, then Terry Gilmore. Chambers talked about Tim's footprint found in the field, that its location matched up with Tim's account of walking over to the body, turning around and heading to the bus. He talked about the lack of physical evidence. He said the prosecution's theory that Tim could have performed the mutilation of Peggy by the light of the full moon and a flashlight held between his teeth was impossible. He talked about how nobody actually knew how Peggy got to boardwalk and landings, although there had been theories on it. They didn't know if she'd gotten there by foot or in a car. Gilmore, in his closing argument, among other things, asked the jury to think of one drawing in particular, one Tim explains as a knife cutting through a sheet of paper, but the prosecution characterized it instead as a knife cutting into a vagina. In Blair's closing arguments, she asked the jury who would have done such a thing to Peggy Hedrick. She went into Tim's drawings and narratives, said it made sense there was none of Peggy's blood found on Tim, she had lost a lot of her blood internally. She told the jury Tim could have seen Peggy's body from the window, though Detective Linda Wheeler-Holloway's accounts contradicted that. She apparently told the jury to reenact the stabbing while they were deliberating, and she ended her statement talking about the motive of living out a fantasy, the opportunity, the proximity of Tim's trailer to the scene, his possession of knives. No one in the world had those things except Timothy Masters, she said. The jurors deliberated for 10 hours, reaching their verdict on March 26, 1999. They found Tim guilty of first-degree murder. Under state law at that time, that conviction of first-degree murder automatically meant life in prison without parole. So Tim left the courthouse that day for his new life in prison. But his attorneys hung back. In Master's book, he wrote that his attorneys had talked to jurors after the verdict was read and found out they were evenly split when they went back to deliberate. But the foreperson was adamant, eventually turning the others. Who else could have done this besides Tim Masters? Here's Maria Liu again. One of the prosecutors argued in closing argument, you know, who else in the world could have done this? I mean, that opened the door to, you know, every alternate suspect. Alternate suspect. So for the majority of this podcast, I've been talking about how Tim Masters was the prime suspect in this murder. But let's get away from that and go into this, this idea that Maria just pointed out, this idea of other suspects. Before I do that, though, I do want to say one thing. There are all these theories that I've read and heard and researched when it comes to the murder of Peggy Hetrick, but I'm a reporter, not a detective, and I have no idea what it was like investigating this crime. I don't know what leads were chased at the time, who stuck out to investigators. Really, I don't have a clue about how police work works. 
And this all happened so many years ago. And what I'm going off of is what people tell me, what I've read in the other news reports, and what remaining documents associated with the arrest of Tim can provide. Anyway, back to that alternative suspect piece. Here's Steve. Yeah, this case is really strange. I mean, because, you know, here's the thing. Um, You know there's other murders, other murders involving knives and young women around the same time. Steve's talking about the murders of Mona Hughes and Linda Holt. Holt, Hughes, and Hetrick were all in their 30s and murdered within a nine-month time period in northern Colorado. A man named Donald Long confessed to the murders of Holt and Hughes and was convicted, but it seems he was never investigated for any involvement in Peggy's death. Also, Steve makes another point. When you look at, a, at someone who gets killed, you always look at their closest known acquaintances. Mm-hmm. And it was a well-known fact that she had an ex-boyfriend or, or a current boyfriend, depending on how you want to you know, gauge that. And there was testimony that she spoke to him that night. And there's testimony that they had some kind of uh, uh, tiff, an argument of some sort. And um, I, would have always, I would have thought that they would focus more on him. And he had an alibi, you know, he, 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 you know, he had an explanation for where he was, but I don't think his alibi was as airtight as the police seemed to think it was. And they very quickly glossed over him and just moved on, you know, let's, let's go back and look at Tim Master because he lived closest to the crime scene. And then there was Derek. So when I first started this project, Kevin Vaughn was one of the first people I called. He's an investigative reporter for Nine News Now in Denver, but he's previously worked at the Colorado and the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. He ended up covering a lot of Tim's life post-conviction. He wrote in 2011 about some questions that still linger in this cold case. One of them was about a guy Peggy had been dating or had dated. There were, there were a half a dozen people, maybe it was five, I can't remember it was five or six. I can look at that story. If, if you have, you can look at it. But there were a number of people close to Peggy who all told the police some variation of the same story that um, she knew this guy or even had dated this guy. A couple of them said his name was Derek. A couple of them didn't know his name. But they all described her as being afraid of him or being uncomfortable around him and that sort of thing. And so when you look back on it in hindsight, um, you know, it's the kind of person that would really like to know who that was and whether that could have been anybody that was involved. There's another question. Again, I don't know the answer to it, but it's who was the guy outside of the prime minister? On March 10th, 1987, almost a month after Peggy's murder, a manager at the prime minister, the last place Peggy was seen alive, called the police. They said something unusual had happened, that an employee there by the name of Teresa was getting threatening phone calls recently, and there was an incident at the bar. She told police that the first threatening call she received was on February 12th, 1987, at around 10.45 p.m. The caller said her name in a deep, low voice, trying to scare her, and then threatened to kill her. On February 24th, she said she was working the door at the Prime Minister and heard the voice again. It said her name, she turned around, and saw a man standing there looking at her. He produced an icicle from behind his back and started waving it in a stabbing motion. In in her conversation, she described his very weird behavior. Remember Ray Martinez? He's the one who took down the report in 1987. And uh, um, he even made the sign of... uh, I can't remember. It's in my supplemental report. I, I think one of the signs he made was like your throat being cut and uh, a stabbing 
uh, gesture of some sort, you know, but mm-hmm. something to that effect, whatever it was, it, it was very uh, illustrative of being something life-threatening towards her mm-hmm. by his behavior. Now, you know, on the bars, you get all kinds of nuts, people that do things, say weird things, so you can't take them all serious, but you don't want to take them too lightly. She described the man as having green or blue eyes, a square jaw, and sandy light brown hair. She said he was athletic looking with a strong build, coming in at about five foot nine. She said he was probably about 30 years old. Martinez told me there was a composite drawing made of this guy somewhere, but I can't find it. Nobody else I've talked to is aware of it. Either way, Martinez told me he thought the description matched that of a Dr. Richard Hammond. This is something that's kind of captivated Fort Collins and has been talked about a lot when it comes to the murder of Peggy Hetrick. It's the curious case of this eye surgeon whose house was really close to the field where Peggy's body was found. Old Coloradoan articles from the spring of 1995 show that a female student from CSU was house-sitting for Hammond while he and his family were away from Fort Collins on vacation. When she went into a bathroom in the home, she heard a sound coming from a heating vent and looked closer to find a camera lens looking back at her. And there ended up being this room off the bathroom where there was a video recording system set up. So the woman took out the tape and apparently destroyed it and called the police, who ended up finding hundreds of homemade tapes. 300. The camera had apparently been rigged to turn on when the light switch came on in the bathroom, and it was trained to focus on the person sitting on the toilet. The doctor was arrested on suspicion of sexual exploitation of children. The ages of women shown in the videos included those in their early teens. He was released on a $5,000 bond on the condition that he'd check into a mental health facility. He was arrested on a Monday, and by that Thursday he'd appeared in court to be advised of his rights, and on Friday he drove to Denver, checked into a hotel, and killed himself. And, mm-hmm. and so when the police hear that Dr. Hammond's committed suicide, um, somebody in the Fort Collins hierarchy says, well, you know something, now that Dr. Hammond is dead and there's hundreds of videotapes of women uh, dressed, undressed, partially dressed, using both the bathroom and the shower at his house, well, since he's dead, let's just go, and de- go ahead and destroy all these tapes. And there were police officers inside the department who said, you know something, we actually need to check these tapes to see who's on them. Because, among other things, there's also speculation that Peggy Hetrick may have been on those tapes. And so we don't know because instead they rounded up all the tapes, they took them to the local dump, and they burned them. We're not done talking about Hammond, but I am almost out of time. So before this episode's end, I wanted to jump back to 1999. I'm looking at an article in the Coloradoan from May of that year. It has a picture of Lieutenant Jim Broderick accepting an award from Fort Collins Police for his work on the Peggy Hetrick murder. Included in the award were also Terry Gilmore and Jolene Blair. By the way, Jolene Blair didn't return my call for comment, and I couldn't track down Gilmore. Anyway, back to that story in the Coloradoan. The story details the case, the twists and turns, the timeline of how things went down from the morning of February 11, 1987, to the afternoon more than 10 years later when Tim Masters was found guilty of the crime in a Larimer County courtroom. The article starts, though, saying the police and prosecutors' work might not be done. Earlier that month, the Colorado Court of Appeals had received notice from Tim Masters. He'd be filing his first appeal. Next time on People vs. Masters, Making a Murderer in Fort Collins. 
this case really laid bare, I think, for a lot of people, their, their worst fears about how the, the system can get stacked against you. I, I've been practicing law for 24 years. I've handled appeals. I've tried cases. I've taught trial practice for 10 years. And I am still shocked at how difficult it is to get out of prison if you're innocent. It wasn't just one piece of paper. I mean, there was a lot. There was a whole body of, of, of anything that pointed away from Tim. It didn't get disclosed. Uh, this included uh, evidence on alternative suspects, uh, evidence on uh, uh, sex offenders. Every time they went to court, they discovered some more evidence that hadn't been turned over. And Broderick had his own personal file, and he'd reach in there like, you know, Felix in his bag of tricks and pull out and go, oh, by the way, I've got this. And they'd never seen it before. Has to be someone with medical knowledge. His best argument on appeal was simply, look, I was convicted off of nothing but character evidence. What he was saying, if it was true, was a great case for letting this guy out of prison. We're a brotherhood, but it, you know, what, what prevailed over everything was uh, justice.